was a wonderful broadcast event that raised $4,000 for community radio. Many thanks to all the listeners who placed bids and local businesses and individuals who donated auction items. If you missed out on the auction, there will be another opportunity to bid on 20 more really great items on Tuesday, December 15th, that you can see at weru.org. The bidding will begin at noon during On the Wing with Jim Bahoosh. That's the WERU Radio Auction, Part 2, on December 15th at noon. Thanks for tuning in and making bids all to support community radio. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. The time is 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will be discussing prophecy of the Seven Council Fires. Our co-hosts today are John Beer Mitchell, Associate Director of the Wabanaki Center, the University of Maine, Orono, and Maria Gerard, director of the Penobscot Nature, Nation Cult- Cultural Center. Um, this is a uh, topic that I've been interested in for quite a while. Uh, I'm by no means an expert on it, but uh, just to give, by way of introduction to this topic, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of a description about the Seven Fires Prophecy, um, taken from the, uh, uh, the Wikipedia version on on the uh, internet. Seven Fires Prophecy is a prophecy originally taught among the practitioners of the Medawin. The prophecy marks phrases of epics in the life of people on Turtle Island, North America. The seven fires of the prophecy represent key spiritual teachings of North America and suggest that the different colors and traditions of human beings can come together on a basis of respect. Originally, the prophecy of the Ojibwa migration story were closely linked. However, the last half uh, prophecy appears to apply to all peoples in contact with the Anishinaabe. Consequently, with the growth of the Pan-Indian movement in the 1960s and the 70s, concepts of the Seven Fires prophecy merged with other similar prophetical teaching found among indigenous peoples of North America, forming a unified environmental, political, and socioeconomic voice towards Canada and the United States. The the expert on this subject today is is John Beer, but what I'm going to do now is uh, we're going to go through the uh, each each fire and uh, 
and Maria Gerard will read the descriptions of the fires, and John Beer will comment. And uh, once we get through that, then we will open uh, the telephone lines up for your comments uh, or questions. So I'm going to ask uh, Maria to start, uh, to start reading on the, the fires. The first prophet said to the people, In the time of the first fire, the Anishinaabe nation will rise up and follow the sacred shell of the Medewin Lodge. The Medewin Lodge will serve as a rallying point for the people, and its traditional ways will be the source of much strength. The sacred magi will lead the way to the chosen ground of the Anishinaabe. You are to look for a turtle-shaped island that is linked to the purification of the earth. You will find such an island at the beginning and at the end of your journey. There will be seven stopping places along the way. You will know the chosen ground has been reached when you come to a land where food grows on water. If you do not move, you will be destroyed. John, you want to comment on that uh, first fire? Well, looking at the, the prophecies and, and the age of the prophecies being a couple thousand years ago, what we had was a direct connection to the land at that time that was beyond what it was during European contact. This was at the time when native people, first people, first nations, as Anishinaabe refer to themselves as people from the sky, uh, were living on the East Coast. They were living among the Wabanaki people. And in this first prophet, they were told to, to, to move that we needed to separate, we needed to take some of the wisdom and some of the knowledge that the elders carried and take it to the West. In doing so, in starting that journey, many, many canoes were, were made and portaged for quite a ways. But looking at the, um, the prophecy in a way that it was starting out to teach us that there was a possibility of losing some of our culture in order to save some of our culture and some of our traditions, especially ceremony and language, was to move, to mo go inland. And again, this is about 2,000 plus years ago when these prophecies were actually written in the wampum. And what we're trying to um, do in this first fire is to bring that wisdom deeper inland to protect it. However, in the start of this journey, we would really now need to understand or be taught the traditional ways by the old elders. The old elders could not leave the East Coast. They couldn't move. They couldn't travel like that. There was no comfort in travel. There was no uh, special uh, care that could be taken for people who were traveling across uh, swamps and lakes and rivers and, and hills and valleys. So a lot of the old knowledge stayed here. And that was what the first prophet was to say. The old knowledge would stay here. But the new knowledge, the knowledge that could be carried uh, into the deeper woods of what we call now North America was to uh, you know, be protected and, and, and to be carried by a younger generation. Therefore, it did not necessarily have the entire spiritual meaning of the elders that, that could travel. So we were going to keep in contact with them for that purpose. And that's what the first fire talks about. Yeah, John, do you, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, 
where would the uh, this Anishinaabe uh, uh, or this group of uh, people, where would they have been located? Uh, Originally? Yeah. Yeah, they were, we were uh, all along the coast from all the way down to what we call South New, South Jersey, South New Jersey now, uh, where the Lenape um, resided, all the way up to uh, Newfoundland, where the Mi'kmaq came in. So the what became the Anishinaabe uh, people, or Algonquin descendants, our cousins, our brothers, our grandfathers and grandmothers, um, were all along this East Coast. But... Um, they were to uh, choose the people that could travel, and there was a certain number of people that could go, mm-hmm. and uh, a certain amount of people that uh, that needed to congregate in one spot in order to start that movement. So they were all along this east coast, mid mid uh, Atlantic, uh, all the way up to uh, Newfoundland area. Yeah. Okay, Maria, second fire. The second prophet told the people, "You will know the second fire because at this time the nation will be camped by a large body of water." In this time, the direction of the sacred shell will be lost. The Medewin will diminish in strength. A boy will be born to point the way back to the traditional ways. He will show the direction to the stepping stones to the future of the Ishinabe people. Yeah, and this, this is one that um, talks about, um, it actually has an implication for um, all tribes in North America. And what we know now in talking with other tribes and other prophecies that are delivered to um, First Nations people in the United States and Canada, in North America, we can look at like the Hopi prophecies and we can look at the prophecies of the, uh, the native people that are up in the Northwest Territory area, the Haida, the Haida Gwaii people, um, and, and, and looking at the people in the Southeast as well, uh, the uh, Chippewa, the uh, uh, Seneca, they they have prophecies as well, and it seems that in this area of the second fire, the second prophet, talking about a boy being born to lead them, what that we're finding out is is has a direct impact, I guess, on how all the prophecies are combined. And what this kind of gets towards and implies a little bit is that there are sacred medicines planted on the four corners of what we call North America, and at some point, all these will be found. The one in the Northeast has yet to be discovered. It doesn't mean people don't know about it. It has yet to be discovered as far as the uh, message that it needs to deliver in order to make the c- direct connection. So what this talks about in a little deeper way is to say that this boy will be born because from what we understand here in the Northeast through our traditional teachings and traditional teachers that have been passed down through many generations, again, a couple thousand years within this aspect, is that this message was put in the side of a mountain, and a boy will discover this message. So it's almost saying that it's in a, it's in a cave or, or a little tunnel that is very difficult to get at. But in the other directions in the United States and Canada, they come in the form of messages that were engraved and symbolisms that were engraved or or etched into, pecked into uh, rocks. So petroglyph types of things. And this boy that w- is born will actually lead us right now in this day into that next level when this is discovered. Well, you, 
that sort of brings something up. You mentioned petroglyphs. I always have to uh, to think, you know, what it's always said that uh, you know the Egyptians uh, they left these ancient scrolls and ancient writings and uh, you know and and they never talk about when they talk about native people, uh, they never talk about native writings. But you know these petroglyphs are in fact that right. Yeah, and and they're as old, if not older, than uh, Egyptian petroglyphs. Just to clarify, too, on petroglyphs, they're different than pictographs because pictographs are literally paintings on rocks. Petroglyphs are literally something you can touch, you can feel. They're right. they're you can pet them. They're pecked into the uh, into the stones, like like the Egyptians did, in in stones. But they built buildings. Uh, they were kind of. Uh, you know, settled. Right. We were semi-nomadic. We're not going to haul right. rock structures around. So. Yeah, yeah. And I and I guess you know, there's a there's a CD about petroglyphs put out. You know, Donald Soctoma uh, talks about uh, on the CD about these petroglyphs, and they point out that they have same some of the same petroglyph characters like in the the Great Lakes region as they do here uh, up in the Eastport region. Right, and that goes so, back to how these seven fire were the seven fires were delivered. Right. Okay. Third. The third prophet said to the people, "In the third fire, the Anishinaabe will find the path to their chosen ground, a land in the west to which they must move their families. This will be the land where food grows on water." Yeah, this is always like a little riddle. Sometimes uh, today we think prophecies are riddles, but basically it's because we have such a grasp on many different languages that we speak now that it seems to be almost in riddles as far as um, how the language is interpreted. But food growing on water, that's pretty basic when you look at the rice. And if you look at the Chippewa, who are the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa is what um, they were given a name Chippewa by the Spaniards that came up in the area and the Anishinaabe spoke a language that they called Ojibwe. Traditionally, they call themselves Anishinaabe, people of the sky, which implies first people. And so when, um, when they get to the place of, you know, the rice, that's the place that they have to, to um, stop for the next uh, message, for the next fire. So the food that grows on water is simply rice. Fourth fire. The fourth fire was originally given to the people by two prophets. They come as one. They told of the coming of the light-skinned race. One of the prophets said, You will know the future of our people by the face the light-skinned race wears. If they come wearing the face of brotherhood, then there will come a time of wonderful change for generations to come. They will bring new knowledge and articles that can be joined with the knowledge of this country. In this way, two nations will join to make a mighty nation. This new nation will be joined by two more so that four will form the mightiest nation of all. You will know the face of the brotherhood if the light-skinned race comes carrying no weapons, if they come bearing only their knowledge and a handshake. The other prophet said, Beware if the light-skinned race comes wearing the face of death. You must be careful because the face of brotherhood and the face of death look very much alike. If they come carrying a weapon, beware. If they come in suffering, they could fool you. Their hearts may be filled with greed for the riches of this land. If they are indeed your brothers, let them prove it. Do not accept them in total trust. 
you shall know that the face they wear is one of death if the rivers run with poison and the fish become unfit to eat. You shall know them by these many things. This is where I think it gets really self-explanatory. And again, when we look at these, these far, fires or what we're calling prophecies, <clears throat> which is a term I think that a lot of people can relate to, uh, we call them the fires, um, basically tell the coming of uh, Europeans, um, not just as a visitor, but as a resident. We had uh, a lot of contact with European, what we call Vikings today, in that you know we did a lot of trading with, with fish and, and visitations and whatever. They would come and, um, and, and fish our waters, and we would share that with them. But this is, this is talking more now about um, a light-skinned race that is going to come here and that is going to be uh, living here among us. Or trying to, as the second part of the fire says, trying to um, establish their own territory and our territory, which would cause contention. So in the first one, coming in brotherhood, obviously they have their hand extended. We know that they're not carrying weapons because if somebody comes to your front door with a weapon, generally you would probably think that this was a bad situation. And if somebody comes to your, your house and they have a, their hand extended, then that's probably a much better situation and you probably want to be in 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 the latter part of that so this new knowledge that the light-skinned race was going to bring was basically knowledge that had to do with um, technology the metals that they brought the types of um, foods that you know they brought they were all different the the ships the the big the big f boats the fishing boats they were all instruments of technology that were going to benefit us as well. But we're not going to just give them, uh, they're not just going to give them to us. We have to ask them and, 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 and learn how to use these types of uh, instruments, these, these technologies. So um, we were going we to move over a little bit. We were going to give them a little piece to live on. We were going to be friendly in that respect. And in return, they would provide us with their technologies and they would provide us with their ways of their knowledge there. And again, that doesn't go to government knowledge. We weren't looking for a new government. We were not looking for a new religion. We were just looking for technology as any culture would and as any culture would use. Looking at the second part uh, of, the, of the fourth fire is um, the part that is a warning. Obviously, if somebody comes bearing weapons, beware. You know, behind, because behind somebody doing that, there's greed, and they wear the face of greed. And that will lead to the face of death. And it, we'll know that we get to that point. It says, if the rivers are poisoned and the fish are unfit to eat. This has happened. And we can walk along any river in, in this state or probably anywhere in the world, really. And it will tell you that pregnant women should not eat the fish, and that if you have a certain sickness, you should not eat the fish, or you should limit yourself to this many fish or, or whatnot. And I think this has a lot to do with pollution. It could be coming from mills. It could be coming from the sky. It could be coming from any place. This is very consistent with the Hopi prophecy as well that talks about the sea turning black and many of the species dying. Um, so there is some consistency between the Anishinaabe prophecies and some of the other uh, native prophecies out there. 
And of course, you know, the sea turning black, you think of the, the oil spills and, you know, now they're discovering, you know, huge dead zones in the sea where no creatures can live because of all the toxicity, toxicity in, the, in the water. Yeah. But, you know, I think another interesting point, too, is, you know, a, a similarity between these uh, prophecies and from different uh, tribes and stuff. You know, they all talk about um, coming from the, the sky or they have a, um, a, common, uh, a, a common folklore, a common story about uh, deriving them from stars or from space or whatever, the sky. So There's a... Um a film that I watched that I like, In Search of the Future, What Do the Wise Ones Know? And one of the questions that that film asks is, um, where do we come from? Where are we going? And how will we get there? And it's a Connie Baxter Marlowe film, and um, it's very interesting because there are a lot of uh, indigenous elders in that film, and uh, several of them said, when asked a question, where do we come from? They said, we come from the stars. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, okay. Fifth prophet. The fifth prophet said, In the time of the fifth fire, there will come a time of great struggle that will grip the lives of all native people. At the warning of this fire, there will come among the people one who holds a promise of great joy and salvation. If the people accept this promise of a new way and abandon the old teachings, then the struggle of the fifth fire will be with the people for many generations. The promise that comes will prove to be a false promise. All those who accept this promise will cause the near destruction of the people. Yeah, and this is talking about the fire losing heat, basically. And warning that there will come uh, among the people those who promise great joy of salvation. And if the people accept this promise and abandon the old ways or traditional ways, the struggle will continue for many generations. And uh, this promise is false, and it will nearly destroy all those people who accept it. And if that fire loses its heat, the fire is tradition, the fire is language, the fire is everything we're made up to be, our connection to the earth, our connection to each other, our connection to family, and our connections to ourselves. And that heat being taken away from the fire basically implies that the fire is going down. It's going away. It's becoming a coal. A coal can start a fire, but if you don't use it, quickly, it's, it can become something very cold and dark and, and dirty, and it becomes carbon and goes back to the earth. And this one really talks uh, a lot about the promise of religion exactly. and, and the fear of, of, um, of death. And so this false promise comes to us in ways that we didn't have any idea that this would, would come to us. And we're talking about, like for one example, is the smallpox uh, epidemic that went through and it was basically uh, spread purposely, which probably is another whole entire subject. But uh, the, the, the premise behind, behind that is that when there were villages with 100% of the people of that village sick and dying, and laying among their dead relatives and their dead children, you know, their, their loved ones, they were, they were laying there dying. The only person that was walking around, and it was noted even by, this, by these people, they were the black robes, the priests, the Jesuit priests. And uh, 
they were the ones that were walking around among the dead. And, and what they were trying to do was trying to help them, you know, trying to uh, make them comfortable and, and, and make them uh, at ease psychologically and physically. So when people, an entire village of people, and this was happening in many different areas, was laying there dying and you'll see one person walking around and this person is a, is a Jesuit priest, then the attitude and, and, and idea w- would be that, well, this person's walking because their God is more powerful than mine or their you know, spiritual leader is more powerful than mine. And so this is where conversion started. The priests were promising the native people who were dying that if they took on the religion that they were bringing, the message that they were bringing, then they would be saved. Now, not necessarily in this life. Their body would still die, but their spirit would go on to the next place, to, the, to a better place than would go on, in, in, again, implying if they didn't take on this religion. So this was given a warning of uh, false prophets. And we all know that in many different religions and in many different cultures throughout the world, uh, there's a lot of talk about false prophets, and this is what that implies. Sixth fire. In the time of the sixth fire, it will be evident that the promise of the fifth fire came in a false way. Those deceived by this promise will take their children away from the teachings of the elders. Grandsons and granddaughters will turn against the elders. In this way, the elders will lose their reason for living. They will lose their purpose in life. At this time, a new sickness will come among the people. The balance of many people will be disturbed. The cup of life will will almost be spilled. The cup of life will almost become the cup of grief. At the time of these predictions, many people scoffed at the prophets. They then had medicines to keep away sickness. They were then healthy and happy as a people. These were the people who chose to stay behind in the great migration of the Anishinaabe. These people were the first to have contact with a light-skinned race. They would suffer the most. Yeah, and you know, Maria just kind of talked a little bit about um, what, what the um, sixth prophet talks about. And again, what it, what it does is it puts up a first line of defense. The first line of defense for us is not necessarily the strongest, most physically able people we have in our village or in our, in our nations. Instead, the most uh, defense we could put up is the defense of our religion within the form of our medicine people, clan mothers who are the oldest mothers, the oldest women in each clan who are chosen by the clan to represent them carries a lot of spiritual knowledge. And also the, um, the, the medicine men and women, again, that carry the physical medicine, keeping in mind that, you know, any good doctor is going to make you feel good spiritually too, going to relax you. But you don't associate your doctor necessarily with your religious leader. Well, we didn't have that either. We had people who were spiritual leaders in that they had a, um, a message that they could carry forth that was a, what we would call now a religious message. But there are also those people that were people that were equivalent to what we call doctors now. They were able to use the traditional medicines based on thousands of years of, of, of sicknesses that we had and were able to use those medicines in a productive way. So the elders, if they lost their spiritual guidance, if they lost their direction, we would then become a hurting people. And what happened a lot was that because of um, 
you know, a lot of the missions coming into the villages and whatnot, the, the religious missions, a lot of the uh, older people that we have today grew up in a very strict environment of, you know, either boarding schools, which were run by Catholic missions and, and whatnot, but they were passing that on to their, their families. And it took away from the language. It took away from uh, a lot of our ceremonies because a lot of our ceremonies, well, all of our ceremonies are based on language and the traditional use of our language. So our people would become a hurting people if our elders were affected, and they were affected. So this is uh, one of the problems, and this is where a lot of people lost their purpose, and this is where a lot of um, knowledge was lost, and that's why people lost their their purpose. Uh, yeah, and um, I think that uh, um, there's another piece of this sixth fire that uh, we need to that have uh, have uh, Maria read. In the confusing times of the sixth fire, it is said that a group of visionaries came among the Anishinaabe. They gathered all the priests of the Medewin Lodge. They told the priests that the Medewin Way was in danger of being destroyed. They ga gathered all the sacred bundles. They gathered all the scrolls that recorded the ceremonies. All these things were placed in a hollowed-out log from the ironwood tree. Men were lowered over a cliff by long ropes. They dug a hole in the cliff and buried the log where no one could find it. Thus the teachings of the elders were hidden out of sight, but not out of memory. It was said that when the time came for, that the Indian people could practice their religion without fear, that a little boy would dream where the ironwood log full of the sacred bundles and scrolls were buried. He would lead his people to that place. This is where it becomes reciprocal. You remember earlier on we're talking about a boy will be born? Right. Well, this is, this is what that is getting. In other words, it, it's going to come back. It's going gonna, it's gonna to circle through our, through our people. And a lot of times when people think about uh, dreams or, or visions or whatever they want to call them, they're usually symbolic. Well, in, in the time of the Six Fire, when these messages, these scrolls are found, uh, then this fulfills the prophecies of the Hopis. It fulfills the prophecies of the Haida and, and, and in, in the Southeast as well, um, the, the Seminole and the, um, and the Choctaw down in that area. And that is when all nations will become one and we will start again to hold our head up. We'll start again to be able to walk straight instead of with our heads down as if we're tired and worn and and, and dragging. What's, what stood out for me in this paragraph was the, the mention of um, Indian people practicing their religion without fear and the um, Religious Freedom Act for uh, Native Americans only passed recently. Was that in the 1960s, 70s? Yeah, it was in 1976. And <laughs> yeah, the, what a lot of people don't know is why would you have to have an act passed that gave American Indians religious freedom? And the reason for that is because our religion and our language was illegal in this mm -hmm. country from the late 1800s, and the first government force as far as showing that was the Wounded Knee Massacre, mm -hmm. where um, Native people out in the Midwest were practicing their religion and their songs against the government's wishes, and therefore they were uh, massacred. M many of them were old, old men, old women, children, and, and mothers. Um, 
You're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and our topic today is the prophecy of the seven council fires. Um, let's go on to the last, seventh fire. The seventh prophet that came to the people long ago was said to be different from the other prophets. He was young and had a strange light in his eyes. He said, in the times of the seventh fire, new people will emerge. They will retrace their steps to find what was left by the trail. Their steps will take them to the elders who they will ask to guide them on their journey. But many of the elders will have fallen asleep. They will awaken to this new time with nothing to offer. Some of the elders will be silent out of fear. Some of the elders will be silent because no one will ask anything of them. The new people will have to be careful in how they approach the elders. The task of the new people will not be easy. If the new people will remain strong in their quest, the water drum of the Medewin Lodge will again sound its voice. There will be a rebirth of the Anishinaabe nation and a rekindling of old flames. The sacred fire will be lit again. It is at this time that the light-skinned race will be given a choice between two roads. If they choose the right road, then the seventh fire will light the eighth and final fire, an eternal fire of peace, love, brotherhood, and sisterhood. If the light-skinned race makes the wrong choice of roads, the destruction which they brought with them in coming to this country will come back at them and cause much suffering and death to all of Earth's people. This is not any message that's uncommon, and we can look at climate in this respect. We can look at what's happening now in the face of the air and the Earth and how we breathe. And if the earth is becoming constricted and the air is becoming sickly, then we be, we're going to become constricted and sickly as well. So when we look at the seventh fire, it's not the end. We're in the time now of the seventh fire. And being in the time of a, of a, of a, of a turnaround, almost of a, of a prophecy coming to its end, is not necessarily a bad thing. There is a warning in that where we can push back the eighth, eighth um, fire. In other words, we can either move towards getting along and, and, and living in a good way. And that means that we're living in a good way with the earth as well as each other, that our air isn't sick, that our earth isn't sick. And that if we get together with the other colors, for lack of better words, the the yellow man, the, the white man, the black man, and the, and the red man, and, and the brown man, then we know that we will become a stronger people. And what's happening now, like in Copenhagen, with the, with the climate summit, it's really indicative of not only the seven fire prophecies of the Anishinaabe, uh, which is, again, our ancestors as well, but also of the Hopi. And that is talking basically about the earth becoming something that it's not supposed to become. And because the earth, what this is saying, will just destroy everybody and take over and rejuvenate itself. And we, it, it will do that with or without us. But this implies that it would rather do it with us. And I can tell you that I would rather be part of this in a productive way too. I don't want to go down um, in, a, in a way that is not a good way because I choose not to live a good way. So the seventh fire is where we are right now, and it's a transition. 
It's easier to look back at the six fires and say, okay, each time there was a fire, each time there was a prophecy, it told them where to go to the next one and the next one and the next one. Well, being in the time of the seventh, we've been there for a few hundred years where we can see industrial revolution and, and different economies coming into play. But at the same time, we were given the eighth fire prophecy at, at that point. So we know we're in that time. We know we're, we're ready to take that next step. Maria, do you have any comments? Well, what strikes me is that, um, like I mentioned before, the similarities between um, the ancient prophecies, the Hopi, the Mayan, and even um, what little I've read and learned about the Essenes, which were the, um, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, all these ancient texts and traditions almost uh, universally tell us that we are one and we're all connected and we need to behave as such. Um, so I just find it interesting that we're getting the same message from all over uh, the world. Yeah. Um, now this, uh, this prophecy that we've been, uh, we've been reading from uh, can be found on the web. It's called the uh, Seven Fires Prophecy of the Anishinaabe, and it's by Edward Benton, I believe it's Benet, a, a Medewin teacher and grand chief of the Three Fires, Medewin Lodge. And his last comment, and I'm going to read it because I think it's, it's a pretty, pretty uh, powerful comment. He said, if the natural people of the earth could just wear the face of brotherhood, we might be able to deliver our society from the road to destruction. Could we make the two roads that today represents two clashing worldviews come together to form a mighty nation? Could a nation be formed that is guided by respect for all living things? Are we the people of the seventh fire? Now, I'm going to... Um, this, this is uh, Webinaki Windows. And I'm your host, Don Loring. I'm going to open up the uh, phone lines for your comments. And you can call us at 1-866-625-9378. Most recently, um, Oren Lyons visited us in Maine. And... Um, I liked one of his uh, comments that he put out there at, at one of his uh, plenary, plenary talks, and that was that uh, global warming will force people to come together and that, um, you know, we need to come together as one people fighting to stay alive as a species rather than um, the, the divisiveness that had sort of ruled the way before. Yeah. Oh, we have a caller. Caller, uh, what's your name and where are you from? Uh, this is David. I'm calling from Brooklyn. Uh, thanks a lot for the show and for uh, giving us this little bit of much-needed space to figure out what we overran there when we came over to North America in the first place as Europeans. Uh, I'm especially interested in, of course, the seventh fire. Uh, and I'm thinking in relation to uh, John Trudell's recent visit, to Old Town to Indian Island, um, which I had the great good fortune to be present at. Uh, and I am interested in his uh, 
take in the talk after the film, which was a remarkable talk, and I, I hope that sometime we can hear it more completely. I hope somebody managed to record it. Of course, I didn't. Um, but what he, one of the, one of the things he was saying was that uh, the work that needs to be done now is on an individual level, uh, and I, I'm interested in hearing about the possibility of uh, merging with the uh, with the, the white-skinned uh, tribes or the white-skinned people uh, now, and also uh, in relation to the uh, hopefully not failing conference in Copenhagen, uh, we as a white-skinned people may actually fail in total, you know, in the large, in the, in the, by the large numbers. But that don't mean that as individuals we're not perfectly well and able to push all of that usness, all of that, that, that our more or less misguided brothers and sisters are doing aside and step forth as individuals into the light that that seventh fire is showing us. I, I think it's so important not to give up hope for us as a white tribe when we realize how misguided we are uh, in general uh, and to hold fast to, the, to the, uh, the hope and the belief that as individuals we can yet do what needs to be done uh, to work in, in peace and in harmony with the people. Yes, I agree, Dave, and I, I think that's a that's a great thought. And um, um, do I have any comments from from John or from Maria on that? I just wanted to mention uh, he he mentioned the John Trudell visit on Indian Island, and uh, there's a excellent um, audio CD out by John Trudell, and it's um, entitled JT DNA, and what he talks about it's a spoken word. Um, and he does some of his poetry re readings in between the spoken word, but he talks very much about um, what he talked about on Indian Island, that the world around us is a mirror of um, our bodies, and by changing our lives, um, we change our body, and if we change our body, we change our world, is um, the message, and it's very interesting. So I would encourage you to, I, I imagine you could probably find that online. It's JT, um, and the title is DNA. Yeah, I think, you know, David raised the point, too. I mean, it just keeps coming up over and over again. We mentioned uh, Chief Warren Lyons, who's Iroquois, and you've mentioned John Trudell, who's, I think he's Lakota. Um, um, no, Santee Sioux. Santee Sioux. And so you know, we have, and, and we're, we're sitting here as Wabanaki people from the East Coast, and we're all having the same message. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're bringing our own people, our Native people, to our communities, other Native communities, and having them say the message again. Eventually, we'll hear it. And if, if we're, we're, lo we're not looking at failure, please don't look at failure, because this is an opportunity, and the opportunity is to survive as a species, because we were told that Mother Nature, you don't ever want to make your mother mad. You don't ever want to make your mother angry. We all know what that might be like. We've all probably had that happen. But our mother's mother, Mother Nature out there, is angry. 
and we want to we want to try to try to make that you know impact a lot less as far as the consequence goes. Yeah, so I remember uh, Orrin Lyon saying that you know Mother Nature has no mercy. You know, there's there's just if you make a mistake, that's it. Um. And I thought, you know, also uh, Dan Wildcat was here uh, a while back. He, uh, he yeah. taught my class. Uh, and he was very good, and he said the same, just about the same things that Orrin Lyon said. Yeah, see, Dan Wildcat is a, uh, I think he's on the, he's a presidential appointer, appointment to um, indigenous environmental impacts on the, on the federal government level. And he's also well-published, and he teaches at Haskell University in Oklahoma, and he has a great message as well. And again, the message is the same. And it's not necessarily like a lot of people, especially academics. I'm, you know, everyone sitting in this room right now, Maria, Donna, and myself, are people who um, have academia around us all the time. We're not necessarily just speaking from a traditional sense, but we're also speaking from a scientific sense of really what's going on out there, outside the windows. You know, we can get in our cars and create our own environment and look at the bad weather as almost like a movie as it passes by, but really, we're part of that. We are part of that. Because if that car decides to run out of gas or in some way die, we're going to realize we're part of that really quick. Yeah. There was, uh, and we were talking earlier about uh, paradigms, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference between the native way of thinking and seeing the world uh, as opposed to the... Uh, the, the, the European or, or non-Indian way. And, you know, from our perspective, everything has a spirit, everything has life, uh, and should be respected. And from, from the majority culture or the, or the non-Native perspective is more or less uh, looking at it to control and to conquer. Uh, so those are very, those are almost uh, um, adversarial sort of points of, of looking at things and um, and hopefully, you know, people will all decide that, you know, this, this is something we all have to, uh, to uh, address together. I can appreciate what uh, David said about stepping forth as individuals versus um, waiting and depending on your governments to, to step forth. Um, there's a belief that old uh, institutes will fail, and that um, during the seventh prophecies, uh, seventh fires will see old institutes begin to fail. And um, I look at the government as one of those old institutes, and that you know things that are not of integrity will implode upon themselves. So we'll we're yet to see what will happen. Yeah, and I, I also think that, you know, the seventh fire is telling us that now we need to go out and share our knowledge. We need to go outside our protective shells as, as Native people. And I know that uh, there's some uh, Native people who feel that we shouldn't maybe be talking about uh, sacred things and uh, prophecies. Uh, but I think that... Uh, that now's the time for us to, to share our knowledge, time to get out there and, and to do the work. And that, that's kind of true. And, and, and I mean, kind of, it's very true, but it's kind of uh, shown to us in, in the way that in Copenhagen, 
in this past week at the opening, there was a representation from every spiritual leader or every spiritual uh, group in, in the world that kind of opened the, the program. And it really, it's more than just a modern sense of, you know, fear or a modern sense of need, needing to change. It's, it's a spiritual sense. It's a spiritual uh, avenue that needs to be traveled by many, many people all over the world. You know, just the United States producing the most uh, doesn't make, it makes us more responsible as far as emissions goes. But at the same time, we have some very knowledgeable elders in our people in North America, traditional uh, First Nations people. So those messages need not only to be heard, but they need to be appreciated. Yeah, and, and the other thing I, I also think of when I think of, uh, of this prophecy and whatever is, you know, other prophecies, for instance, like the Mayan uh, calendar prophecy. And uh, I, I know that, uh, that Oren Lyons in his last uh, lecture at the university sort of mentioned that, uh, not, you know, sort of like in a passing way. And, and, he, and he basically said, you know, what's going to happen when we get to, uh, to 2012? according to the Mayan calendar, because everyone's saying it's disastrous and the world's going to come to an end. You know, and, uh, and Oren said, well, they'll probably just, you know, it was a Mayan calendar, probably just ran out, so they'll probably make another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, um, it does talk about, uh, a new calendar will be made. That's, you know, I've sat in on some of the Mayan prophecies, which are very old as well and a new calendar will be made according to their traditions, but they say that that's at such a time of change, the year is at such a time of change, that we will have some sort of change, and it probably will be in the form of, of thinking and of, of priority as far as our living goes. And that probably has a lot to do with the industrial aspects of who we really are and what we do. Hmm. So... Do you have any more thoughts on the the uh, the seventh fire? Anything we've not discussed about it yet? You know, there's quite a bit um, of a following within the seven fire prophecies, not necessarily with just um, Algonqu Algonquin uh, descendants. You know, we've known for thousands of years that we were related to the Cree we being the Wabanaki, people of the first light, knew that we were related to the Cree way over in the Saskatchewan area of Canada and the, and the Blackfoot over in the Montana area. We've known that. We've spread across this continent uh, above and below the Great Lakes and shared that with the Iroquois, you know, at least east of the Great Lakes and a little bit west over in Wisconsin today. But um, a lot of people look at the seven fire prophecies and use them as a teaching tool and they're well published, they're well recorded, and they're well documented. Keeping in mind that they're not just a not just an oral tradition that's been passed on. They also are a um a uh, very detailed set of fires or set of prophecies that are written in what we call wampum belts. And wampum in our language means the talk. 
not necessarily coinage or money, but it means the talk as in a book, as in something that teaches you something. And that's what they do. So there is a wampum belt keeper that has these seven fire prophecies that's been around for a couple thousand years, passed down. Mm-hmm. I have someone on the line. Uh, could you tell me what your name and where you're from? Okay. Hello? Yes. Could you speak up a little bit? Sure. Lawton from Penobscot. Oh, okay. Really appreciate your show. I just was wondering, I know time is short, but if you guys could try to address this piece for me a little bit, I think you have, is that I had an, uh, an elder Ojibwa Indian in Minnesota tell me that his people, the lungs were the organ of grief, he said, and that his people started smoking more because they knew pretty quickly what you were talking about, that the white people were so disconnected from nature, they felt, that they were, you know, just going to take and not really respect the spirit of the plants or the animals or the rocks. So I'll hang up, and I know that's a big question to answer answer with so little time. What was the question? What was your question? (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, and he brings up a good point um, about, you know, the lungs, the lungs, because we really have, you know, lungs becoming sick and, and becoming depressed, you know, um, some of that self-enforced, you know, environmentally or, or socially. But it does say that um, within the, within the, within the seventh fire is that um, you will be able to, uh, ride the light, ride the wind, if you're clean. That means physically. Yeah. I have another caller on the line. Could you identify uh, yourself and where you're from? Hello, I'm Laura, and I am from Penobscot. Mm-hmm. And I um, am so grateful for this programming to um, hear other people speak about how I'm feeling and um, the, uh, the stars and the heavens, the earth, in the unity consciousness, it's true, and I'm so grateful for your words. So thank you, and happy solstice. Oh, thank, thank you, you for calling. Be well. Okay. Uh, do you have something to say, Maria? Or? Just a comment. Uh, I didn't. I didn't hear the question in the last uh, call, but John clearly did. So, um, was he saying that people were smoking more because of the? Okay. Um, there's a. There's a lot of discussion in um, a lot of the publications that are out most recently that corroborate science and spirituality. And one big belief is that um, our bodies are a microcosm of the earth. So how we treat our bodies, um, whatever we do to ourselves and our bodies befalls the earth. So um, if you're thinking about smoking more because you think it's futile, you might as well take a look at what that might do to the earth around you. And how that might affect the earth. Yeah, my, you know, that sort of, my thought was, you know, they, we used uh, tobacco as, as, uh, as something sacred. Mm-hmm. And then when, uh, when it's outside of that, uh, that sacred realm, it's, it's, it, it can be abused. And I think when you abuse something sacred, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Just my own personal thought. Um, we do have an announcement here for uh, an event, and uh, it's this event's going to take place on Friday, December 18th at 6 p.m. at the Nick Sapiel Jr. Conference Room, and it's going to be uh, 
uh, a book uh, reception for Donald Soctoma for his book, Remember Me, uh, Toma Joseph's Gift to Franklin Roosevelt. So again, that's going to be at the uh, Penobscot Nation, Friday, December 18th at 6 p.m. at the Nick uh, Sapiel Jr. Conference Room. Uh, we hope to see you, uh, see you then. And uh, I think if there's no more calls, I'm gonna, we're just going to uh, sign off. So we thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, uh, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to um, Webinacki Windows. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my guests, John Bear Mitchell and Maria Gerard, and our engineer, Amy Brown. Please join us next month for another Webinacki Windows. Thank you.